You're listening to the Live Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Good morning, Life Church! What's up, everybody? Great to be here with you this morning. My name's Alex, if we haven't met yet. Uh, if you've been following us for a while, you know we're in our series, Jesus Is, and this week is the last week. And if you haven't been following us, hey, welcome. I'm really glad you're here. I believe the God's brought you here today. And one of the things I just want to start with as we begin our time together, a couple weeks ago, Amber and I were in Florida, and um, we were at a funeral. It was, her grandma passed away recently. It was really sad. And we had some tense conversations uh, just around the death and some of the things that came up around that, tense family conversations. And so when we logged on in the morning to watch Sunday service digitally, uh, Bob Hoy was speaking. And he spoke so directly to so many of the things we had just had these tense conversations about. And I just saw, as I looked around the room at Amber's family, just God moving in our hearts in ways we never expected. And that's my prayer for us this morning, is that God would speak to you through me this morning, so that He might speak to the little places in our hearts that we didn't even know we needed to hear His voice. And I believe that He's going to do that today, and that's my prayer for us this morning. Like I said, we're in the last week of this series, Jesus Is, and the question that we've been asking this whole series since Easter is, who does Jesus say He is? Who does Jesus say He is? Now, we've talked about all these different things Jesus has said. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the true vine. I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the door. I'm the bread of life, etc., etc. And all of these are analogies. And traditional Christian theology says that Jesus is God. But one of the interesting things we never find in the New Testament is Jesus saying the phrase, I am God. Uh-oh. So, why do we think that Jesus is God? Is Jesus God? We see people like Thomas in the New Testament calling Jesus my Lord and my God, and Jesus doesn't correct him. But again, the question we've been asking is, who does Jesus say he is for himself? And I want you to hold on to this question, is Jesus God? And what does Jesus have to say for himself about that? Because that's what we're going to be looking at today. But in order to understand how Jesus answers this question, we have to understand a little something about facts and a little something about stories. You see, facts and stories are just different ways that we as human beings communicate truth. In modern life, we really prefer to communicate through facts. We want empirical evidence that leads up to a conclusion that can be presented succinctly, clinically, clearly. And facts are great. Listen, there's nothing wrong with facts. I love a good fact. You love a good fact. The sun rises. That's a fact. I'm happy about that one. And it sets. Happy about that one too. My bed is soft. Also a great fact. But where facts may help us comprehend something, they don't always help us understand something. And so let me give you an example of a fact that you may comprehend, but maybe don't understand. Here's a fact. God is with you. God is with you. Now when I say that, how do you feel about that? Do you go, yeah, maybe. Do you believe me and go, yeah, he is. Does it hit you in the heart or maybe you just feel numb and go, I don't even know what that means. I know that's how I felt for many years. So now that you've heard the fact, let me tell you a story. 
I decided last summer to do some furniture flipping. And uh, it was a hobby that I just picked up because I wanted to do something with my hands. You know, I sit in front of the computer way too often. And I was like, oh, let me do something constructive, creative, but I'm not in front of a screen. And my mom said, hey, I'm going to read through the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and I said, that's a great idea. I hadn't read them since I was like six. And I was like, that's a great idea. I want to read through them with you. So I'd put my headphones in, I'd go out to the garage and I'd be sanding or painting. And I would listen through the Chronicles of Narnia on audio tape. And one particular day, I was listening to a story called The Horse and His Boy. And the story follows a boy named Shasta. That's a great name, isn't it? Shasta. And Shasta lived with this fisherman who was cruel to him, who he thought was his father. But in chapter one, we find out the fisherman isn't Shasta's father at all. And actually, Shasta is an orphan. The fisherman plans to sell Shasta into slavery to a man visiting their tiny shack who's quite wealthy. Shasta laments this, and he processes his despair by talking to the man's, the visitor's horse, explaining how he wishes he could just run away and he doesn't want to become this man's slave. And then out of the blue, the horse talks back. And it turns out that this horse is a slave too. He was kidnapped because he's not a horse of Tashban. He is a horse with a mind and a voice and a will, a horse that has been touched by Aslan, a horse from Narnia. And it's Narnia that this horse wants to get back to. So the two decide that they're going to make a run for it. They get chased by lions. They get embroiled in an international conflict. This plot to overthrow a kingdom in times of peace. They end up having to sleep in a tomb at the edge of a desert and almost get attacked by jackals. They have to swim for their lives through a stream and cross a desert without enough water. They use up every single last ounce of strength trying to prevent this war. And when they've done everything they possibly can, they're still not sure if it was enough. And at this point in the story I want to read to you, we find Shasta lost in a mist with this unseen companion. He's lost from the rest of the group, unsure if all of his efforts throughout the whole story have made any difference. And he begins to lament. He laments about his life and his hardships and how his life has been nothing but hardship and how he was an orphan and all these different things. And he laments to this mysterious creature, this mysterious someone who walks next to him unseen in the mist. And this is what happens. It says, so Shasta, he told how he had never known his real father and mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and all of the dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beast howled at him from the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion finally chased them and wounded Erebus, his companion. And also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat or gotten a good night's sleep. And the voice responds, I don't call you unfortunate. Well, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two lions the first night. There was only one lion. How do you know? I was the lion. And Shasta gaped open mouth and said nothing. And the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with your companion Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead in the tomb. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. 
I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear to finish the last mile of your journey so that you would reach the king in time. And I was the lion that you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to the shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. I was the lion. Who are you? Shasta asked. I am myself, said the voice, very deep and so low that the earth shook. I am myself, said the voice, loud and full of joy. And then the third time, I am myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as the leaves rustled with the sound of the whisper. Shasta was no longer afraid of his companion. No longer afraid the voice belonged to something that might eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new and a different kind of fear came over him. Yet he felt glad too. And a golden light fell on them from the left. Shasta turned, thinking it was the sun, but what he saw pacing beside him, taller than a horse, was a lion. It was from the lion itself that the light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or more beautiful. But after one glance at the lion's face, Shasta slipped from his saddle and fell at the lion's feet. He couldn't say anything. But then he didn't want to say anything. And he knew he didn't need to say anything. The high king, the lion above all kings, stooped towards him and lifted his face so their eyes met. Then instantly, the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion all rolled themselves together into swirling glory and disappeared. And there were birds singing. So I'm in my garage. I'm sanding a dresser. <laughs> I'm listening to this whole story of this boy's hardships throughout his life and how Aslan speaks to Shasta, showing him how in each of these moments of greatest misfortune and hardship that he was there and Shasta was never alone. And I'm crying as I'm like sanding a dresser. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, this is why we need stories. This is why we need stories. I can tell you the fact that God is with you, and you can hold that fact at arm's length. You can decide whether or not you want to feel it. You can decide whether or not you're going to judge it from a distance or really engage with it, but stories pull us out of our own perspective, out of the details of our own world, and allow us to see truth with fresh eyes, like it's the first time we're here. When, Aslan, when I see Aslan rehearsing Shasta's life back to him, saying, in your darkest moments, when you felt most abandoned and unfortunate, I was right there for you and with you. I can feel God speaking into my own life and all these circumstances and difficulties come to mind. We need stories because facts may give us comprehension, but stories give us understanding. C.S. Lewis, who's the author of the book, The Horse and His Boy in the Chronicles of Narnia says that art has a sacred ability to sneak past the watchful dragons that guard our hearts and reach us with truths that facts alone simply cannot. Where facts fall short, we need stories. 
And we've seen this, right? In the last two years, life gets so complex and it's so easy to get lost in the detail and the nuance and the emotional heightenedness of each situation, whether we're dealing with masks or we're dealing with vaccines or trying to relate cross-culturally and heal wounds there or trying to decide things about gun laws and human rights and fairness and justice. It is in these places that facts so often fall short because we can understand things and comprehend them, but they don't really hit us in our hearts. And it's in these places we need stories to pull us out of all the details and remind us of what's true. And so today we look at a story that Jesus decides to tell. Today we're going to be looking at Jesus' trial before he's crucified. Because when asked directly if he's the Messiah, he does not respond with proofs or irrefutable collection of evidence or a clear timeline of events. He responds with a statement and he responds with a story. So Jesus is brought before this ruling group called the Sanhedrin. It's made up of two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're like two different denominations of Judaism, basically. And then the high priest is in charge of the whole Sanhedrin. And they have Jesus on trial Jesus has been betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Last Supper is over, and here he stands before this ruling body. And this is what happens next. It says, They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. At this, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Wow, that's an explosive interaction. Whatever Jesus said in that little sentence there to them was evidence of blasphemy. But here's one of the weird things about that. It can't be because he agreed to the, being the Messiah. right? They asked John the Baptist if he was the Messiah. That wasn't blasphemy then. So it's not the messiahship that was the blasphemy, it was something else. And we're going to break it down by looking at the two things that Jesus said. He says, I am, and then he says, you'll see the Son of Man, you know, etc. So each of these statements isn't just a statement, it's a callback to a story. So we're going to start with I am. <clears throat> the Greek phrase that Jesus uses here is this phrase, ego amy. I want you to say that with me. Ego Amy, you guys are so good at that. It's really good. But here's a funny thing about that phrase. It's not grammatically correct. It's like saying, you know, if I were like, hey, you know, you in town for the weekend and you said, I exist. <laughs> That's literally, literally what it means. It's like, it's not really kind of an agreement. It's this broken, like, what, uh, okay, thank you. You know what I mean? Like, it's this weird, weird, poorly gra uh, grammatical phrase. <laughs> and um, Jesus says it on purpose. And why would he do that? Because it's not really answering the question. They go, are you the Messiah? And Jesus goes, I exist. It's like, okay, well, what does that mean? And why do they get so offended at that? Well, when Jesus says that, he's quoting a story. He's quoting a story that's part of Jewish history that they have told each other over and over again. And this story comes most to bear 
at the time of Passover, which is the meal that he had just had the night before with his disciples. This is a story <clears throat> from the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. And it's a history about the time in the Bible that God gave himself a name. You see, throughout the Old Testament, people give God lots of names. You're God my provider. You're God my banner. You're God almighty. You're God my protector. You're God my shield. But all throughout the book of Genesis, God doesn't give himself a name. Until he's having this conversation with Moses at this burning bush. And Moses says, okay, I'll go. But if they ask me who sent me, like, what do I tell them? And God said, tell them, I am who I am sent you. So this is the name that God has given himself. This is the name the Jews were so careful not to take in vain that they used alternate names like Adonai or Elohim in order to not take God's name in vain. This is the name that freed the Israelites from Egypt. This is the name that people cry out and praise as they celebrated their freedom. This is the name above all names. It's the name that God has self-disclosed. Now, at the time God said that, and this was written down, Hebrew was the language the Bible was written in. And one of the interesting things about Hebrew that is like totally fascinating to me is it doesn't have any vowels, right? And what's weird about it not having any vowels is it means it's a language you can only understand if you can conversationally speak it, right? That, that the purpose of writing stuff down is to jog our memory. It's not to fully describe things because there's no vowels. You have to be experienced in the language and know it by experience in order to read it. And so God comes in a language that you have to know by experience in order to then understand. And he says in that language that his name is W-H-Y-H. Y-H-W-H. So dyslectic there for a second. <laughs> and now, like I said, ancient Hebrew has no vowels. So the way they pronounced this was Yahweh. And then after the time of Alexander the Great, right? So we have Plato and Alexander the Great. This is thousands of years later. He takes over the whole known world, teaches everybody Greek. And this is about 250 years before Jesus is born. Hebrew's not the international language. Greek's the international language. So a guy comes along and he translates the Old Testament into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. And so this is the translation of the Old Testament that would have just been available at the time of Jesus. And in the Septuagint, the Hebrew consonants, Y-H-W-H, -H, Yahweh, I am who I am. The name of God gets translated into Greek as Ego, Amy, Ho, Amy. So when Jesus responds to the chief priest's question with I exist, Ego, Amy, he's answering the question, who are you, with the name of God. So the chief priest goes, are you the Messiah? And he says, I am who I am. Very different answer. But he doesn't stop there. And he could have. They would have killed him just for that. But he says something else. And I, for many years, was so stumped by like, why though? You know what I mean? Like, like okay, so. But what, what does that even mean, Jesus? And he says this. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is he talking about? Like, is this a prophecy? Is this like, what? Well, What's happening here? I felt like it was so cryptic. But as I began to study, I learned that this was another story. You see, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this vision, this daydream, this nightmare. And this is called, in, in the biblical genre, apocalyptic literature. 
And the closest thing that we might have would be like a political cartoon. It's where you caricaturize things into a story to understand what you are trying to say. So for example, it might be like, we might see a political cartoon with a knight fighting a dragon and the knight's maybe got an elephant or a donkey on his shield, right? And the dragon has the other, the elephant or the donkey. We'd go, oh, okay. This isn't a historical thing about uh, a knight fighting a dragon. This is a political cartoon. I get it, the Democrats and the... Right? We understand that. And so Daniel's vision is like that, right? It's this, these fantastical images that represent some things that God is trying to communicate through Daniel. And so the story goes like this. The vision goes like this. There are these four beasts. One's a lion with its wings ripped off, and then it stands on two legs like a man. One is a bear with three ribs hanging out of its mouth, looking for something to devour. One is a leopard with wings. And the fourth, <laughs> the fourth beast is the most fearsome and terrifying of all. In fact, it's not even all beast. Its teeth are made of iron. It's this mixture of animal and machine. And it has 10 horns. And its 11th horn looks like a person, has eyes like a person. This beast is so far from both human and animal that Daniel can't even describe it. And it's frightening. An angel later tells Daniel that these beasts represent human kingdoms. And that we're supposed to understand that these kingdoms are more beastly than they are human. That sin has turned these kingdoms that God intended originally to reign with him as extensions of heaven into these beastly, destructive, mutant, and unrecognizable things. And then Daniel says this in his vision. When I was thinking about the horns on the fourth beast, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, And the first three horns were uprooted before it, and this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I looked, thrones, notice here, more than one throne, were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, which is God, took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was as white as wool. His throne was like flaming fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Notice God's throne has wheels. He's not stuck in the temple of Jerusalem. He's able to move wherever he pleases. A river of fire was flowing out from before him, and thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch, because the boastful words the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire, this river of fire coming out from the throne. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked in there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now notice something real quick. Daniel's just had this whole wild vision, this story that's happening before his eyes. And every human thing we've seen thus far that's been coming from earth has been characterized as a beast. And the first human thing we see in the story isn't coming from earth, it's coming from heaven. It's coming on the clouds of heaven, this son of man. And this son of man, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is the one that will never be 
destroyed. So wait a second. So the Son of Man, this, this human figure, the first one we see in this whole story, is coming from heaven and then overthrows the beastly kingdoms of the earth. And then the multiple thrones that came down from heaven, this Son of Man takes the throne with God himself and then is worshipped by people like God is worshipped and then given God's power and authority and glory over all the earth. So he's reigning with God, by God, for God, as God? Yes. Exactly. Yes. So when Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, he is calling the Sanhedrin back to this story. And he's saying that king that is more human than the kings of earth, the one who comes from heaven to judge and defeat and to overthrow the beastly kingdoms of human people and establish God's goodness and righteousness and rule and reign as God with God, that is me. I am the son of man. And because Jesus identifies himself as a character in this story, he's also inviting the Sanhedrin to identify themselves as characters in this story. And do you think Jesus was inviting the Sanhedrin to identify themselves as the angels? Uh, I don't think so. Do you think he's inviting them to identify themselves as Daniel? Uh, I know he's not inviting them to identify themselves as the ancient of days, right? So Jesus is inviting the Pharisees to see themselves in this story as part of the beastly kingdoms. Jesus never says in this succinct, scientific, clear uh, way, I am God. But what he does instead is he invites us into a story that is meant to be experienced first and understood second. A story in which he is very much God. A story in where he is, I am, setting up his kingdom here through us to reign forever and ever and ever, and turns our governments of beasts back into kingdoms of human beings. So what do we do with this? I mean, that's a lot, right? That's a lot. What do we do with that? Well, Jesus is brilliant. He's the master of all life. He is the source and author of all life. And I believe that there is a reason that his response to the prompt, Jesus is, is a call back to the Hebrew name of God and a reminder of this old story, this true dream. He doesn't give any logical proofs. He doesn't go through the facts of theological explanations. He calls us into a story, which in itself is the invitation. The first and foremost invitation from Jesus to you and to me this morning is to join him in the story. The Pharisees tried to turn Jesus into an issue, into a debate, into a politic, but Jesus wouldn't let that happen. He instead invites them into a story where they are forced to face truths that are bigger than their context. And Jesus' very presence among them means that God has invited himself into their story, and that God has invited himself into your story, not as an idea or as an issue to debate, but as a personal God who wants to be face-to-face -face with people. And, in, and this morning, Jesus is extending that invitation to us. It's an invitation to fill in the blank, Jesus is 
what? The Pharisees and Sadducees filled in that blank with, he's a blasphemer and a demon. The crowd said, well, he's just a good teacher. The town said, he's, he's delusional. And Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. Who do you say Jesus is? This morning, I believe that Jesus is inviting you to acknowledge him as I am. To acknowledge him as the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, as the creator of all things, to, as the one to whom time itself bends and from whom all life flows, as the one who will judge the kingdoms of the earth and who will set all things right and good. Like the Sanhedrin, we all have courts set up in our own hearts where we will weigh Jesus' words, I am, and we will choose to accept this self-revealing as true or reject it as false. God's invitation to you today is to come to know him as the Lord of your life and the God of the whole universe. The second invitation is to experience him personally. This is an invitation to intimacy. Jesus doesn't give us the option and this answer of just standing at a distance and turning him into an idea that we can think about but don't have to really engage with. He comes down into human history. He came down into Daniel's dreams. He's come into your story and my story, not to be at a distance, but to be face to face. God wants you to know him and to experience him face to face in this grand story that he is inviting you into, not as a metaphor or an analogy, not just as a good teacher, but as a real living person, the true and living God. I believe that God is inviting you this morning to know him deeper. He's inviting you into an intimacy where you know him and he knows all of you face to face. And lastly, I, I think the third invitation that this story gives us this morning is an invitation to live the story. Right today, God is reaching out to you, right? Despite the craziness of the world, the chaos, the beastly kingdoms, and the governments that are so corrupt and cruel, sometimes we go, I don't even know how to describe that to people. It's so broken. It's so messed up. It's such a mutant thing. I don't even know what to say about it. That these kingdoms that are sin individually and collectively have created, that the God of all heaven and earth is coming to make these things right and to judge these kingdoms, to hold a court that brings true justice to every brokenness, injustice, evil, and sin in the world. And that this God came down in human flesh to take all of that sin upon himself just after this trial. That he might offer us a restored and renewed wholeness and intimacy and hope. That he might bring us out of the kingdom of beasts and into the kingdom of the Son of Man who sits at the right hand of the Father. God is inviting you to bring that kingdom from heaven to earth today by the way you live. Living not as though the news and the beastly kingdoms of the earth are the ones who have the final say. But as holy ambassadors, heaven sent, preaching the good news that the end of the kingdom of the beasts is in sight and the Son of Man will reign forever and ever. That he has forgiven our sins and has given us a way to a restored relationship with God and fullness of life in all of its intention and glory. And so I ask you, who may God be sending you to today? to live this story? Who maybe has he already sent into your life in the past week, in this season? Who is God bringing around you and bringing you to that you might live this story, 
that Jesus is, I am, the Son of Man. Whether you find yourself this morning in a place where you just, you know you haven't acknowledged Him as, as Lord, and you need to, and you feel the Holy Spirit just pushing on your heart. You don't even know what the pull means, but you feel it there. God is inviting you this morning. Maybe God's inviting you to deeper intimacy, to be face-to-face, instead of at an arm's length, trying to deal with Him as an issue, as an idea, as a politic, instead of as a person face-to-face. Maybe God is inviting you to obey Him in a deeper way, to love a difficult person, to live out His hope in a place that is so chaotic and so desperate for hope, to live in the joy of the coming kingdom at a time that it's so hard to be joyful. Wherever you find yourself this morning, I just want to invite you to pray with me as we just surrender ourselves to the Lord and go, Lord, this, I get so confused and think that life is all about me and I'm the one that has to fix all these beastly kingdoms. But Lord, you, you're coming to do it. So let's, let's pray together as we just surrender ourselves to that reality. So Father, we just ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we ask forgiveness for all the ways in which we have contributed to the beastliness of earth. And God, we just right now acknowledge that you are Lord, that you are who you say you are, that when you died and rose from the dead, you proved that you are the resurrection and the life, that you are the bread of life, that you are the way and the truth, that you are our good shepherd, and Lord, that we can trust you. Because you are the Son of Man who has come and will come again to restore the world to its good and right form. Lord, we believe that. And Lord, we surrender. We open the doors of our hearts. Lord, for those of us that have let you in, but you're only allowed in the living room of our hearts, but there's some bedroom and closets that we just, we're afraid to let you see. Lord, we just open those to you today. And we just ask for your healing love to just permeate those places. And finally, Lord, I just pray that you would open our eyes to see your story and pull us out of all the details and frustrations and and things in our context, Father. I just ask that you would help us to see the people that you have brought into our lives so that we may live this truth that they may see us seeing you, and that, Lord, they might come to know you. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you just prayed with me, please message us, because we are this beloved community that Jesus has made to partner with him in restoring this world. You are not alone. We are in this together, and we want to walk with you. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.